So good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and get started. My name is Alina Polyakova. I'm the deputy director and of the Eurasia Center here at the Council and also senior fellow for Europe here as well. And it's really my pleasure to be part of this panel with this very distinguished uh, group of discussants and panelists to introduce our new report uh, called The Kremlin's Trojan Horses, Russian Influence in France, Germany, and the UK, which all of you can pick up outside if you haven't already. So I, I just want to say a few words about this report. I'm one of the authors on it, but of course, I'm joined here by two of the other authors, Marlene Laurel um, and Neil, Neil Barnett, uh, and Stefan Meister, who wrote the Germany case, wasn't able to be here from Berlin. Uh, but Andreas Umland will be stepping in to talk uh, a little bit about Germany. But before I go over to our panelists and introduce them uh, to all of you, I want to talk a little bit about why we wanted to do this project. And the impetus behind this report is really to make the point that uh, Western democracies are not immune from Russian influence. And we started this project long before uh, a lot of the revelations came out about Russia's potential influence in our own elections here in, uh, in the United States during the campaign, hacking of the DNC and, and other private email servers of Democratic officials. And now our focus is on Europe's core, that's Germany, France, and the UK, countries that the US has traditionally seen as allies. Uh, they've been the beacon of liberal democracy, uh, liberal capitalism as well in, in the EU. And many people, when they ask about, how do we understand Russian influence? And what doesn't matter? Uh, they want to follow the, the money. They want to know about financial relationships. So is the Russian government funding individuals, groups, or organizations? That information, except in very rare cases, uh, which I'm sure Marlene will talk about, is almost impossible to find. And there's a reason for that. Uh, these kinds of relationships and network are intentionally opaque. They're intentionally hidden uh, because they're more effective when they are hidden and opaque. And that is the point of this report, is to draw out the individuals, the organizations, so built relationships with the Russian government, looking at, at how the, those relationships have developed and what effect they've had on policy. And I really encourage you to look at the policy recommendations, which are, of course, at the end of this report as well, uh, that I think are incredibly relevant and useful for uh, particularly Germany, UK, and France, but the EU more broadly. Uh, so before uh, I jump into the details of the report, I'm going to quickly introduce our distinguished panel here. Uh, so to my left, as already mentioned, is Neil Barnett, who's Chief Executive Officer of ISTEC Associates. He's also the author of the case in the United Kingdom. To his immediate left, I have uh, Dr. Mitchell Ornstein, who's not only Senior Fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute, but also uh, Professor and Chair uh, of the Department of Slavic Languages and Literatures at the University of Pennsylvania, and also has published extensively on this particular topic of uh, far-right and Russian influence and the connection between the Russian government and populism. And then, uh, of course, immediately to Mitchell's left is Dr. Marlene Laurel, who's one of the authors. Uh, she wrote the case on France, and she's the director of the Central Asia Program and also associate director of the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at the Elliott School of International Affairs uh, here at George Washington University. And, of course, an expert on Eurasianism and Russian politics more broadly. We're delighted to have you here with us today, Marlene. And to Marlene's left, I uh, have Dr. Andreas Umland, 
uh, who we caught uh, very surreptitiously on his trip to DC, one of the few. Uh, so we're lucky to have him. Um, Dr. Umlan is a senior research fellow at the Institute for Euro-Atlantic Cooperation in Kiev. Uh, he spends a lot of his time in Berlin as well and is an expert both on Ukrainian politics and obviously German politics and you know, just broader Eurasian-European relations as well. So thanks, Andreas. And to Andreas's left, I have uh, Josh Rogan, uh, who is the columnist uh, for the Washington Post. I'm sure many of you have been reading his recent articles, particularly those on um, Russian influence in uh, during our own campaign cycle, and he's done some amazing investigative work on that topic as well. Thanks for joining us, Josh. Uh, and then last, but certainly not least, uh, again, surreptitiously caught from, uh, I guess, via Indiana, but uh, from Hungary, uh, is Dr. Peter Kreko, who's now a Fulbright professor at, the C at Central Eurasian Studies Department and a faculty member of the Russian Eastern European Institute, Indiana University, but usually uh, director of the Political Capital uh, Institute in, in Budapest, and has followed the developments in Budapest and the rise of Orban uh, very, very closely, <coughs> and we're lucky to have him. So I wanna actually start with Mitchell. Um, Mitchell, you've been writing a lot about these issues, and I want to ask you to give us a sense about the terminology we use in this report. So the report is called Trojan Horses, uh, the Kremlin's Trojan Horses. And this is how we as a group have chosen to define the kinds of relationships that we see developing in, in Western European countries. Uh, you've also used this term in some of your own work, but others have also used uh, the idea of useful idiots, um, agents of influence, the old Soviet term. So how would you talk about these pro-Kremlin groups that we see emerging in Western European and Eastern European countries? Um, and do they pose a serious threat, mm -hmm. you think, to the EU? Well, yes, I mean, it's quite clear. I think it should be quite clear after the US election that yes, this does pose a serious threat. Um, in terms of the terminology, I think it's, it's an interesting question. So you, you know that, uh, that I've authored an article called Trojan Horses in EU Foreign Policy. And in that article, uh, together with my co-author Dan Kelman, we were uh, trying to identify a specific phenomenon, which is the use of member state governments, um, pro-Russian member state governments, by uh, Russia to try and undermine particular policy positions of the EU Council, for instance, or the EU Commission. And I think in this report, uh, you use the term a bit more broadly to indicate, as Trojan horses, uh, people who are uh, either you can prove or prospectively in the, uh, presumptively in the employee of Moscow or uh, representing Moscow in some rather direct linkage, right? So that they're either have a, a, a news show on Russia today, which means that the Russian government may be paying, is paying them, or they have some sort of sponsorship that is coming, uh, for instance, through an organization, uh, a Russian cooperation organization, that you might say is similar to a kind of front organization that existed in, you know, under Soviet times. And so for me, I think Trojan horse terminology brings up a couple of implications. I mean, one is this covert nature, right? It's, it's sort of the placement of a, of, a, of sort of enemy force in a way, right, within the walls of the, of the city. And in, in that respect, I believe you can speak of some uh, of the uh, agents of influence in that terminology, that would be correct. But I think you, you would want to probably restrict it to those who you can tell um, are placed and those who you can tell are being placed covertly. 
um, at least to some extent. Um, the issue, I think, it comes, and I think this is something we can discuss a bit more, when you, um, there's many people in Europe, as well as in the United States that we see, who are certainly not being paid by the Kremlin, and yet are taking pro-Russian stances on foreign policy. And these people, you know, are very impolitely, you know, referred to as, as uh, uh, useful idiots. I, I think it was a, a Leninist term, right? Um, but you know, I think more, maybe more, you know, accurately, you can say that, you know, there's a certain zeitgeist right now. There's a certain um, uh, opinion. There's a lot of people who uh, are coming around to, or will come around to, or are thinking along the lines of you know, uh, sort of an appeasement or um, a friendly relationship towards Russia or are attracted, have an elective affinity towards Putin or towards um, authoritarian rule, conservative authoritarian rule, who may join forces with, um, the, with uh, Russian foreign policy without being a direct agent of influence. And I think that distinction is important, um, both in terms of how we use a sort of accusative terminology but also more broadly in terms of how uh, we analyze the situation and the sort of dangers that are in. The danger is not only that um, there are these agents of influence, the danger is that um, of winning the hearts and minds of quite a lot of people in Europe. I do want to come back to this question of how do we understand this uh, seeming you know, pro-Russian turn in politics and policy, um, not just in Western Europe to some extent, but of course also in Central and Eastern Europe and when we can called sort of the gray zone of Ukraine, Moldova, et cetera. We just had elections in Bulgaria and Moldova that brought in pro-Russian governments. Uh, Estonia is also teetering mm -hmm. uh, with the collapse of their own government. And I do want to talk about that, so thanks for bringing that up. But I want to give Marlene a chance to discuss France. I think France is one of the most interesting cases in this report because it's been so much more publicized, the relationship between the National Front and potentially a, this Russian funded bank from the Czech Republic. As all of you might know, there was a big story uh, last spring uh, where Mar Marine Le Pen admitted to receiving funding, I think of about 9 million euros, uh, from a Czech-based Russian-funded bank. Uh, but it doesn't seem to have hurt her at the polls uh, very much at all. Uh, so could you talk a little bit about how this, this particular incident, this very stark admission of financial uh, connections and support was received in France specifically to contextualize it a bit? And how would you describe the degree of Russian influence in French politics today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if I can just kind of follow the, <laughs> the, the discussion we just began, <clears throat> I think this notion of tro Trojan horses is a kind of very difficult one analytically. I'm not sure it's the right one because the majority of people who will be discussing here of this pro-Russian European political figure, they are not puppets of the, right. of the Putin's regime. They have their own interest, their own political perception of the world, they have their own popular legitimacy, it's just that their own vision of the world is overlapping with Russia's one. But I think they have their own agenda and it's very rare where really you can identify people that you can really see as kind of puppet, really created artificially uh, um, by the Russian regime. So I think we should be very careful because in the majority of cases, these personalities have their own legitimacy in the lo local political agenda. And the French case is a good example of that because the success of the National Front globally in, in French politics has nothing to do with Russia because the French public opinion is not very much interested in what is happening 
around Russia and Ukraine just because it's not part of the general political culture among the, the, the French uh, uh, general opinion. So it's really deep issues, domestic issues that make the National Front so successful, unfortunately, all this last year. The, and when the, 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 the bank loan was uh, made kind of open and recognized by the National Front itself, it created a kind of shock among the French political uh, uh, leadership, but not really among the French population, because that's not the kind of issue that people are looking at. So I think that's one aspect. Another one that I think is important to understand the French general context is that you have this historical uh, uh, Russian diaspora present in France, very much uh, uh, active in the political and the cultural landscape, and they are very much representing Russia's interest on many aspects. The fact that a few weeks ago, uh, France inaugurated the biggest Orthodox cathedral in Paris created this one, a lot of uh, discussion, because that was really interpreted as a, as a, a dangerous soft power tool coming from the Russian Orthodox Church and therefore from the, the, the Kremlin. So this case of the Orthodox Church was much more discussed than the bank, bank loan to uh, uh, the National Front. And then more globally, which I think is important and it may be very specific to France, is that you have two geopolitical elements that make that a relatively large part of the French political landscape, the mainstream one, is kind of not pro-Russian, but in favor of reconciliation with Russia. The first one is that you have this kind of the goal, goalist tradition of being very cautious toward the US, the transatlantic commitment, and wanted a kind of continental Europe uh, politics. It's still very much influential among the French military circles, for example, this goalist tradition. And then globally, the French foreign policy is so much oriented toward the relationship with the Middle East, French politics in uh, policy in the, in the Arab world, that really what is the, the, the situation in Syria and globally the collapse of the Middle East is so much important for the French foreign policy that it <coughs> kind of pushed Russia on the side or on the contrary, it pushed many French mainstream politicians to consider that they should, they want to reconcile with Russia because they think Russia can be a partner in, in, in trying to manage the situation in the Middle East. So that's why you have this growing uh, Russophile groups very clearly uh, visible among the Republican party and especially around Nicolas Sarkozy and François Fillon, they have been really very much involved in trying to build new, to try to reconcile with, with uh, Russia. So that's a totally other, a different trend from the Marine Le Pen one. So I actually uh, want to pass it over to Andreas and because Marlene has started mentioning a really interesting point, which is about how historical legacy and politics play into the current dynamics. I think that's important for, for France, with the Gaulist tradition, as Marlene was saying. Uh, but also in Germany, we had this tradition of Realpolitik, um, and of course the term you know, Putin versteher, Russland versteher, um, you know, understanding of Russia. It's a German term that has entered you know, our English uh, discourse as well. Uh, so Andreas, I know you're stepping in for Stefan very, very graciously, but how does this historical legacy of working with, with Russia, Germany has a special relationship with Russia, you could say. How does that really affecting what we're seeing now, particularly with the rise of AFD, which I think has been very cautious in making any public statements regarding Russia. Uh, maybe it doesn't matter uh, in some ways because Marlene was saying these are domestically driven processes. These politicians and political groups are not puppets. And I don't think we're trying to imply that in any way here. Uh, but can you contextualize what's happening in Germany now, given this history of special relations with Russia? In a way, the, the paradox is that we know uh, about this special relationship, but still within the European context, the EU context, 
Germany nowadays um, appears as a hawk what, what, uh, concerning the, the sanctions towards Russia in um, relation um, to Ukraine. And that's even more surprising in view of, I think, two peculiarities uh, in, in Germany. This is, um, um, and I wonder how the other uh, experts here on, the, on other countries um, would, would compare that to, to Germany, that in Germany the, uh, the relationship, this sort of um, Russian influence uh, on Germany, but also German influence on Russia is institutionalized to a larger degree, I would say, than in other countries. So the, the central organ here is um, an organization called the German-Russian uh, Forum, but there are also others, uh, the St. Petersburg Dialogue, which is a sort of German-Russian Valdai Club, you could say, or the, the uh, Eastern Committee of the uh, German Industry. And obviously there are also institutions in other countries that play a certain role um, between um, in, uh, Russia and, and these countries. But the, I think the, the important thing about these uh, institutions that I just matter, um, men mentioned for, um, for Germany is that they matter. These are large institutions, influential in, uh, institutions. So if you compare, for instance, the German-Russian forum with the German-Ukrainian forum that I also know, most people wouldn't even know that there's such a thing as a German-Ukrainian forum, whereas the, whereas the German-Russian forum is, 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 a, is a quite influential uh, institution. And now there's this, maybe this new think tank appearing in Berlin called uh, Dialogue of Civilizations, which has several uh, prominent German, um, German uh, public figures in its, um, in its board. Um, the other peculiarity of the German-Russian uh, relationship is uh, this whole um, uh, special uh, connection between uh, the Putin regime and the Social Democratic Party. And, um, and it's, I think, peculiar in two ways. It's a left-centrist party. It's not a radical left party. It's also not a right-centrist party like the Republicans in, in France. It's also not a far-right party, but it's a left-centrist party. And it's a, it's a sort of multifarious relationship. So uh, it goes over several um, generations. You, you have this uh, the sympathy uh, on, on, the, on the part of the older generation from, of the SPD, like uh, it used to be with Egon Barr and, and Helmut Schmidt. You, then you have this uh, somewhat younger people uh, like Gerhard Schröder, uh, Platzek. You have in the current uh, um, government uh, people like Sigmar Gabriel. You have also um, former people from the Friedrich Ebert Foundation, like uh, um, uh, Professor Peter Schulze, who is now uh, on the board of this uh, uh, supposedly new think tank, uh, which has not been, uh, I think, op operational so far, Dialogue of Civilization of, uh, of Yakunin. So it's, it's a multifarious relationship. And on the background of this, uh, the, the hawkishness of the current, uh, the relative hawkishness of the current German government is actually quite, uh, quite surprising because the, um, um, you know, if you, if you look at, at, at this whole tradition and also, of course, lots of cultural uh, connections and so on, it's, uh, it's surprising. It, uh, it can be explained, uh, in my opinion, partly by, I think, what is the main motive in, in this sort of German policy towards towards Russia, towards Europe, and towards the world in general, that it's driven by a sort of um, a pro-European pacifistic idealism. That is, I think, what stands behind it. And um, so, um, so often, I think, people, uh, they, they're sort of very critical of this German foreign policy. But it, um, and and you, could, you could, you could uh, sort of criticize this idealism by itself. But I think that, in a way, explains both the, the former very sort of 
um, um, pro-Russian policy of, of, the, uh, of, the, uh, uh, of the same administration as we have now until uh, the Crimea annexation, the modernization partnership, the strategic partnership, all these institutions that I mentioned. But that also explains now this disillusionment in the, in the German government that, that um, they've, they've now sort of, um, not only the CDU, even the SPD, people in the SPD like uh, Steinmeier or Ella, they, they've, they realize that that uh, Russia is not part of this sort of uh, pan-European ideal, this sort of um, peaceful world, that which is sort of, the, I think, the main driving force. And of course, there are also other driving forces for this putin Fashtierei or this Putin-understanding anti-Americanism, very important for the, for the alternative for Germany, the far-right party, also for the, for the uh, left party. Uh, the whole <coughs> issue about World War II, which uh, I think in, in, in 2014 was a big mis misunderstanding, which I think has now clarified so the Ukrainians in, in Germany, they've pointed out um, that, you know, we, we were also part of this World War II uh, thing. And, and you know, we've, we've also uh, been uh, Red Army soldiers and, and so on. And then there are, of course, the financial relationships. Uh, you know, that Schroeder is working for Gazprom, um, formerly very influential Alexander Ra, who, who had the... Um, was heading the, um, uh, the sort of Russia section of the German Council of Foreign Relations and has, has, has now uh, switched to the German-Russian Forum, uh, works also for, for Gazprom and, and lots of other things. And then there's also, I think, uh, um, part of the story is just sheer provincialism, in uh, world political provincialism, I would call it. Maybe the, the, the best expression for this is, is, this whole, is, is this whole reference to the Ostpolitik of the 1970s, that somehow these, uh, these lessons... That, that was the one moment when post-war Germany sort of had its own policy and its own foreign policy initiative. And so people now refer back to that because there's not much else to refer back to because Germany was always a minor player until recently in, in world politics and they had this Ostpolitik. Now ref they refer back to that. But I think it's, you know, it's just a misunderstanding because that was a completely different context. And of course, what, ha what followed after the Ostpolitik was then the, the enormous, uh, were the enormous tensions of the early 1980s, where we were on the brink of a, a nuclear war and, and the Afghanistan and, and the, um, the, um, the rockets, the, the new missiles in, 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 um, in, uh, in Europe, SDI and so on. So, um, you know, it's also a little bit a misunderstanding of how world politics works. So this provincialism, I, I'm, I'm afraid, is also part of the story. But despite that, Germany is very much becoming a foreign policy leader under Merkel, right? Um, yes. And I think what's interesting, what you're describing, and comes out also clearly in the report and in the comments that Merlin has also made, is that we tend to, uh, sort of in the academic expert community, there's a lot of research already being done in the relationship between the, the fringe populace of the far left and the far right in the relationship with uh, the Russian government. But what you're describing, Marlene, and what you're describing as well, Andreas, is that there is, it's, it's, it's also in the mainstream, right? We can't talk about these people as puppets of the Kremlin or anything like that, but they are also using that relationship to fulfill their own political aims, perhaps, um, and they're using it to benefit in, in some uh, way from establishing these kinds of ties with Russia, whether they be economic ties, and in the case of uh, Schroeder, for example, perhaps the most famous case, um, or perhaps you know, political uh, gains that they could have from uh, being seen as siding with a strong authoritarian leader like, like Vladimir Putin. Um, so, Neil, I, I do want to talk about the UK, uh, because all of these things that we've been talking about, about influence seeping into the mainstream, if you want to call it that, you also describe in, in, in your case study in the United Kingdom. Uh, you talk about Corbyn as well. Andreas mentioned the SPD, um, that it is a strange 
perhaps odd relationship. You have a central left political leader and political party that has individuals in it arguing for pro-Russian agenda, perhaps being somewhat apologist at one point about Russian actions in Crimea as well, though perhaps not now as much. Uh, so could you tell us a bit more about the UK? And particularly, uh, my sense is that in the report, the UK comes off uh, as is in a relatively positive light compared to France and Germany in any case. But it also seems that a lot of the relationships that you seek to describe are relatively opaque. Um, it's very difficult to trace any sort of financial ties, as I mentioned before. Uh, but in any case, has the Kremlin actually been successful in building any sort of political influence in the UK specifically, even though it comes off, I think, in a much uh, softer light than, than France and Germany? Yeah, um, well, first I should say, I've, I have a cold and I'm losing my voice, so uh, I may sound a bit uh, strange and my voice may disappear, so sorry about that. Um, <clears throat> the strange uh, position with, uh, with Jeremy Corbyn um, and the Labour Party is, I think it's part of a broader phenomenon. It's mirrored with, the, uh, with Aaron Banks, who's the principal funder of UKIP. And I think what, what's, what's emerging in the UK is, uh, is that political parties are being challenged by movements. So, and this presents uh, all kinds of opportunities for uh, opportunistic foreign powers, uh, vis Russia in this case. Because a movement, it's a moving target. Um, it doesn't have the same regulation and uh, establishment as a political party, and therefore you can do really a lot more with a movement without being held accountable than you can with a political party. So Jeremy Corbyn and Seamus Milne are, are the leaders of Momentum, which is a radical left movement. Uh, he happens to have hijacked the Labour Party and also become the leader of that but he's above all the leader of Momentum, and he places the interests of Momentum, which, uh, and, and the policies of Momentum, which include uh, being very firmly pro-Russian, uh, above the interests of the Labour Party, and it could be argued that he wants to destroy the Labour Party in some respect. Uh, moving on to Aaron Banks and UKIP, uh, UKIP, for those of you who follow British politics, uh, is in a very strange position. It has one MP. It's in complete disarray. In a sense, it's a joke. On the other hand, UKIP won uh, the referendum. Uh, you can say you can read it that way. And Farage is, you know, now the bridge, supposedly, between the UK and the US. He is, yeah. Or he's trying to position himself in that way. Uh, allegedly, yeah. Um, and... Uh, the, the figure behind uh, UKIP in terms of funding is Aaron Banks. Now, I didn't go into huge detail about Banks in the report, partly because of space, but I wrote an article about him in the American Interest, um, headlined uh, Who Funded Brexit, which has a lot more detail. And if anyone's interested in it, I say have a look at that. Uh, Banks and, uh, and Farage remain on very good terms, uh, and in fact, Banks was with Farage when he visited um, your president-elect a few days ago. Um, but Banks is now saying that he favors uh, replacing UKIP 
with what he calls uh, a movement, a popular movement. So here you have the two, the two poles of uh, Russian influence in British politics, uh, both of which are essentially movements. Banks's is yet to fully emerge, but I have very little doubt that it will emerge. Um, Banks put nearly $10 million, about £6.5 million, pounds, uh, into uh, Brexit through uh, Leave.eu and Grassroots Out. He donated several millions to UKIP before that. He's now trying to acquire uh, a national news title in the UK. I won't say which one, but he has the ambition and I assume the funds to buy a national news title. And as I say, he's launching this new um, movement which will either replace UKIP or, or, or assist it electorally. What's very uh, pertinent in this case is that I'm told that Theresa May has taken the decision to hold a snap election in the spring so that she has a mandate. Now, given that Parliament is, is sovereign in this matter, according to the recent court decision, it means that in the spring we're effectively going to have a second referendum uh, in the guise of a general election. And the population are likely to vote uh, candidates in or out, largely on the strength of their position on Brexit. So I think what you may see is the Liberal Democrats taking a lot of seats from the Tories in prosperous middle-class areas that are anti-Brexit. And... Banks' new movement taking a lot of seats from Labour in the north. Um, yeah, could I just interject? This yeah. new movement that you're describing being funded by uh, Aaron Banks, yeah. uh, do you see that as also having links to, to the Kremlin? Well, the, the, uh, yes. Uh, but we, the point about Banks is we don't know really where his money comes from. So the simple answer that he would give is that I've made many millions... Uh, developing insurance companies and then, and then selling them to investors, which is true. But his money uh, and his business interests are centered on Belize and um, Gibraltar. And uh, the way that I would describe it, it's like a bucket of water. If he has uh, a liter in that bucket and some other mysterious figure pours another liter into it, you have a liter of water in that, two liters of water in that bucket, and it's one body of water, and its origins are extremely difficult to, uh, to tease out. Um, I wasn't an expert on uh, electoral funding legislation before I did this report, but I looked into it and I found out something extraordinary. I'd always taken it for granted that foreign funding of British political parties is, is forbidden, and it is. But when you look into the regulations, uh, a UK or European established company uh, or, or an individual uh, UK citizen, can uh, donate money to political parties without problems. But where it comes to companies, their beneficial ownership is irrelevant. So if Vladimir Putin were to establish uh, a company in the UK and register it at a company's house, and he were 100% owner, there would be no breach of electoral law whatsoever. Uh, and so there are, there are big holes in, uh, in the regulations. And I would not accuse Aaron Banks of anything, but what I would say is that uh, where his money comes from uh, is, is a mystery. You know, it comes out of completely opaque offshore centers. It seems to be practically endless at the moment. Uh, and 
I think that's a serious cause for concern because the effect that he's had uh, on the UK's destiny is, is hard to quantify. So I think to me, when I hear you describing these kinds of effects, and beyond Aaron Banks, however, uh, you know, the UK does seem to be relatively resistant uh, to foreign influence from authoritarian regimes like Russia, at least compared to the kinds of institutional relationships Andreas has described and the sort of mainstreaming uh, of, of the far right to some extent into the conservative right that Marlene has, uh, has described as well in France. Uh, but going forward, it seems like you're describing a potential for more vulnerabilities and openings for foreign governments to take advantage of you know, disenchantment with establishment <coughs> parties, uh, perhaps funding of movements as opposed to parties, et cetera. I guess we'll uh, have to see what happens in the spring. Um, I want to open the floor a bit more outside of Western Europe as well. Uh, we have Peter here and Josh as well. I think the elephant in the room is, of course, our own elections um, that we just had. You know, we, as, as analysts, experts on this issue, then following the rise of populism in Europe, uh, have often talked about uh, Viktor Orban, for example, uh, who, a personality you know very well, Peter, uh, as, you know, this very kind of potentially template-like leader uh, for Central Eastern European countries, who tries to play both the West and the East, um, tries to roll back uh, democratic institutions, uh, while at the same time expressing a lot of admiration for authoritarian leaders like uh, like Putin, for example. Uh, of course, we've had our own uh, campaigns, and uh, our president-elect has said very positive things about uh, the Russian president as well. Uh, so what does this all mean? I think many of us here um, in, in the United States who are confused about the elections and a new reality here, and we're still trying to understand what this all means for foreign policy. Um, you know, Peter, you have gone through the Orban years. Uh, do, how do you see the situation in Hungary? Do you see any connection you know, between what's happening in the U.S. now with the election of um, Donald Trump and what happened perhaps with the election of Orban? How do you see these new personalities? And is this a path that you see the region more broadly taking uh, going forward? Yes, I, I think you're completely right. And, and uh, I think the report is right in that as well. So what we can experience in, uh, in the whole Western world right now is, a, as, as Mitchell said as well, a populist zeitgeist in which uh, forces that are uh, criticizing the traditional elites uh, defined in a lot of uh, separate uh, ways have some illiberal tendencies and uh, have Russia as a role model of policies and ideology as well uh, are on the rise. And the question is that where this process will stop. We don't really know, given that we have elections next year in France, in Germany, in Netherlands, in uh, Czech Republic as well. We will have one soon in Austria. And what I do think is that kind of uh, axis, I wouldn't say that there is a, always a very, uh, how to say, handbook, uh, playbook, uh, according to which these players uh, cooperate. Uh, populist radical right forces in, in uh, <coughs> Europe, uh, populist readers such as Orban, um, Donald Trump and the Kremlin, but this is an axis of joint interest. So this has been an axis of joint interest. I think the, the mere fact that Donald Trump became the president of the United States will change the rules of the game. But, but anyway, right now, what we can, uh, what I expect, and it might be a very controversial statement, that there will be 
much more and deep changes uh, as a result of the election of Donald Trump in Europe than in the United States. And these kind of populist right movements will uh, gain a huge momentum. As for uh, uh, Viktor Orban, I, I don't know him personally as well, but there is someone in the audience who definitely uh, does the ex-charge de FA uh, of, of the United States uh, uh, to Hungary, who uh, Andre Gutfriend, who, who uh, knows him well, and, and he was in, in Hungary in a quite tense period uh, between uh, the US-Hungarian uh, US relations. And generally, what we can observe in Hungary is that right now, uh, Viktor Orban, however irrealistic it, it sounds, have some messianistic visions of becoming the leader of Europe. And what he is deeply interested in is that the traditional elites in all over the Western world are swept away by the refugee crisis. And, and unfortunately, we are seeing more and more signs of that that is uh, happening. And Hungary is a very interesting case for the reason that uh, I think uh, it definitely uh, has uh, walks a few steps above the Western world in, in many, I would say, uh, negative aspects. And uh, Viktor Orban, for example, was uh, one of the first leaders of the Western world, if we can uh, say so, uh, who endorsed Donald Trump in a period where nobody really uh, thought that he will be able to win. And right now it's, it's his victory as, uh, as well. Uh, so I, I do think that, that what we can observe in Hungary, well, there is a pretty much pro-Western public opinion. We have just, uh, we'll publish a, a public opinion poll soon that, seem, that shows that uh, among Central Eastern European countries, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary. Hungary is the most pro-Western uh, in, in uh, regarding the attitudes of the population. Still, we have a governmental party, Fidesz, that is pretty much uh, aligned uh, with, with Moscow. And also, we have a far-right party, Jobbik, which is practically, we can say in this uh, uh, case, the puppet uh, of Moscow with, with a member of the European Parliament, Bela Kovács, charged for espionage for Moscow. And similarly, as Aaron Banks, uh, he has a Russian wife uh, who has links to the secret services, Russian secret services. And uh, this, uh, his wife has three husbands, uh, one in Hungary, one in Japan, and one in Austria, which is a bit, let's say, at, at least a bit strange from a party that traditionally promotes conservative values in, in family and elsewhere. So, uh, and, and at this point, I would make a very slight disagreement with the otherwise, I think, perfect and, and very well written report, the title itself, uh, Trojan Horse. Because what I think we can see in overall Europe and the Western world is that nothing covered uh, about uh, the intentions of a lot of players. Marine Le Pen, for example, openly praised Vladimir Putin and vice versa. Vladimir Putin mentioned what, uh, Marine Le Pen as one of the leaders of, of, of Europe, the future, promising future leaders. Avdi has published its um, manifesto in German and openly targets the uh, ethnic uh, Germans in, in uh, uh, Germany and has a very blatantly pro-Russian uh, stance. The UKIP it was even quite well known for its pro-Russian uh, stance. So all over Europe, I can see that it's not like Trojan horses, but uh, a hostile uh, 
army is just marching into the fortress and the gates are open. And, and this is the big problem, I would say, that, that, uh, that uh, they should not even cover uh, their intentions and the voters really interestingly doesn't really care. The public opinion has shifted to a more uh, a hostile direction towards Russia, according to the researches of the uh, Pew uh, Research, for example, and still, uh, it, it didn't really have an effect on, on the decision of voters in Hungary, uh, in the UK, and right now in the United States. And, and this is an interesting question, why is it so? I think you're absolutely right, and I think most of us would probably agree with that statement as well. Um, <laughs> the gates are open, there's no need for Trojan horses anymore. Uh, that, that's a disturbing thought, but I do think you have a, a, a very valid point, uh, Josh. So I have to ask you, you know, most of us have probably read most of your analysis in the, in the post um, during our campaign season as well. Um, does, does all of this matter? You know, uh, we've been talking about how, uh, you know, th this is out in the open, I mean, the relationship between the Kremlin and these particular organizations, individuals, parties, groups, et cetera. Um, there's no more need for things being opaque, perhaps, even the financial ties remain opaque. Uh, they don't seem to matter, electoral outcomes. Um, there was a huge, obviously, media uh, coverage of potential links between the Trump campaign and WikiLeaks and Assange and the Russian security services, et cetera. Um, but that didn't seem to actually do anything, you know, in terms of ele electoral uh, outcomes. So, you know, what's your take on all of this? Sure. Well, th first of all, thanks for including me, and uh, congratulations on the report. I think your question gets to the heart of it, which is, you know, it matters because while all of our European allies have been dealing with this for quite some time, for the Americans, it's new and interesting and very misunderstood, okay? And although we, in Washington we're aware of this sort of, you know, call it what you will, Trojan horse, I like to sort of think of it as low-intensity warfare. It's a combination of you know, information operations, the weaponization of migration, the use of cyber tools, right? What the report accurately calls active measures, right? And this switch from sort of classic espionage to active measures happened in Washington and in the United States at the time, at the most hypercharged moment in our politics in recent history, okay? And because this was done in sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, and exposed to the greater American political consumer class, in uh, in this sort of haphazard and misunderstood way, it resulted in the issue just being completely, you know, sort of uh, uh, chaotically misrepresented by all sides in ways that are really damaging to the discussion. So I think the report has the basic role of being able to educate people about this, and which which we badly need. But let me take you through why I think this was so mishandled during the election, and each of the actors has a different responsibility for the Trump campaign. And you know, uh, you know, the, we can get into the sort of the details of the links, which I happen to have done a lot of reporting about, it was more of a sort of tactical, convenient decision to sort of, first of all, deny that these things were happening, then embrace the information that was leaked, and then sort of, you know, use that to come up with a thinly veiled sort of, you know, uh, uh, outreach to uh, a new relationship with Russia that we're now seeing uh, play out in the transition, right? So for them, it wasn't really about the in the U.S.-Russia relationship. It was about their short-term goal of winning the election, which uh, they did. For the Democrats, you know, and, and who were mysteriously all of a sudden on the anti-Russia side of the issue, 
they were forced to sort of, you know, I think what they did is they overreact, they overreacted, and they actually went beyond the facts. And you know, I, I found myself writing defenses of the Trump positions on Russia because the Democratic uh, Hillary Clinton's political team actually, you know, leaned so far into this that they not only damaged the credibility of the argument by, you know, putting people out there like Harry Reid to say things that weren't true. Uh, they politicized it because anything that they were going to lean on was going to get politicized. And then the Obama White House, you know, for basically, besides confirming the fact that Russia was doing these things, which was a very labored over decision, really hasn't done anything. Uh, they reoriented very late in the game the U.S. intelligence apparatus to sort of look at these things, you know, a day late and a dollar short. But their calculation was that any more aggressive measures to counteract these uh, Russian influence operations, which I do believe, and most people who I talk to the intelligence community believe, did have some effect, it's impossible to know how much effect on, on the election, uh, would only escalate and potentially worsen the problem before the election. They also have this you know, bureaucratic process that's not suited to these things, that wasn't nimble enough to react. And they figured Hillary Clinton was going to win anyway, so she would just take care of it. And they wanted to leave her a range of options right, to do that, so she would have some leverage, et cetera, et cetera. And all of that went away. You know, I think, you know, listen, you know, the optimistic view is that now that Trump is in, he's going to learn all of the information, he's going to become educated on these issues, and then uh, wise advisors are going to steer him towards more realistic policies that acknowledge the facts of Russian interference in the U.S. political system and the U.S. information environment and then respond to those, right? That's the optimistic view, right? Here's the reasons that that optimistic view might not pan out, right? He doesn't trust the intelligence that's given to him, right? He, he has different priorities, right? For him, this might just not be at the top of his list. If he can join with Putin to kill ISIS, then all this stuff may be, you know, not as important. And he has a fundamentally different worldview. And that's what I think what, you know, uh, is the big elephant in the room is that if, if Donald Trump himself wants to realign US foreign policy he, towards a more pro-Russian, less European-centered stance, he has the power to do that. And no, none of us in this room is going to be able to stop him. And the most, I think the most scary part is that, you know, when we talk about, you know, I think it's absolutely true that all of these Groups in all these various European countries have their own agendas, their own, you know, uh, you know, constituencies, their own funding. It's a complicated tapestry of interests. Um, but you know, Trump's chief strategy, strategist Steve Bannon, is in the process of aligning himself with all of these movements in real time. We can see it happening. It happened today. It's going to happen yesterday. It's going to happen tomorrow. Right? That's a game changer. Okay. And if if the Trump administration starts cutting out what we consider to be mainstream political parties and focusing on these groups. I think exactly as you said, these groups are going to receive huge boons into their uh, popularity and their resources. And, and uh, I think that's the thing we have to follow the most. And uh, yeah, I think I'll stop it. No, there. thanks, Josh. Uh, you know, I can't help but thinking from all the comments that, you know, from you about there being a potentially profound shift um, in worldviews based on the, on the leaders we have elected in this country, but also in Hungary, uh, potentially with the elections. I, mean, I don't know if Le Pen uh, will win the French elections, but she's certainly not projected to enter the second round of the presidential elections in France. Um, in Germany, we don't know if Merkel's going to stay or not yet. Um, of course, in the UK, uh, Neil, you described this 
similar dynamic of movements challenging establishment parties. Um, and in the entire EU, in the European Parliament as well, Mitchell, as you talked about, uh, there are individuals who are advocating very aggressively and have disproportionate representation in the European Parliament uh, compared to their national uh, uh, parliaments uh, in pursuing a pro-Russian agenda, if you want to call it that. But what I can't help thinking, are we going through a profound uh, paradigm shift? I know this sounds a bit jargony, but are we going through a, you know, a rethinking of the international order, as we know and such, as a result of the elections, the prominence of these leaders who see uh, you know, Western democratic models is no longer the fait accompli for the West. Um, I'd like to hear all of your thoughts on this. Uh, I know we have the, some time constraints, but, um, you know, Peter or anybody who wants to take that. I mean, maybe Michelle. just start and say a couple things. I mean, one of the things that most strikes me about this change in worldviews is that the, the key issue, it seems to me, from Trump and from his uh, people around Trump is not Russia. I think this was said before. It's not Russia. For, for a lot of us, and you know, as Mitt Romney famously said, <laughs> Russia is the big strategic threat, right? For I think most of these people that we're talking about, it's, it's radical Islamic terrorism, right? You hear them say this all the time, right? That is the key strategic threat. And, and basically all the policy, the, the worldview is sort of a shift towards this global war on terror perspective, where Russia is not really a threat. Europe is not really a big deal, right? The Middle East is a big deal. ISIS is a big deal. You know, refugees coming, you know, into the country, particularly from the Islamic world, who are sort of ticking time bombs of terrorism in this perspective. You know, um, terrorist threats like in France, right? That's the biggest issue. Now, security experts can debate this, and I've heard plenty of security experts say, that really the threat that's posed by ISIS to the United States is not very significant compared to the threat that Russia could pose to the United States because they can blow us up. They can reduce us to ash, as, as you know, one of their politicians recently said. So from a security perspective, I think that's the paradigm shift. Mm -hmm. I think these people are serious about this. I think they see that as a threat to religious values. They see that as a threat of terrorism that plays extremely well politically. I think they see it as... Um, as a threat, uh, an economic threat, um, you know, uh, uh, a threat to the community, to the nation. Um, and so I think that's really the paradigm shift that's happening is, is, is and I don't know that it's going to be that easy um, for, so I'm not sure also, the flip side of it is I'm not sure how much it's a threat to uh, liberal, liberal democratic mm. institutions per se, right? To some extent, they may feel that they're protecting liberal democratic institutions, right? But by cracking down on sort of human rights and civil rights and, and you know, uh, taking a different perspective on, on race and religious issues um, than has typically been associated with liberal democracy. Yeah. Yeah, so the shift you're describing is this focus on security. You have to make alliances or partnership with unsavory characters, then be it, right? As long as we're still fighting um, terrorism, quote unquote, whatever that means, ISIS, et cetera, uh, then that, that's the real shift that's happening now. And I know, Josh, you have a, a comment, and then Andreas and Peter. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I would just say that if you listen to what Donald Trump says, and if you believe that he means what he says, the paradigm shift is this. It's that, you know, now, uh, you know, the U.S. government will deal in, with foreign policy issues on a state-to-state -state level exclusively, right? He's promoting the sovereignty of the state above all else. You can call that 
classic realism, whatever, I'm not an academic, term it what you want. But it, it basically means that each sovereign state has the right to do whatever it wants inside of its borders without much criticism or interference from the US. And then the US will deal with those states on a one-on-one -on -one or maybe occasionally a multilateral basis. Now, what that means is that you know, for the next four years, forget about the sort of push for uh, liberal democratic policies, human rights, uh, the freedom agenda that we saw in the last Republican administration, or even the push for universal rights that we saw in this administration, okay? Uh, where it's basically a blank check to any of these leaders, whether they be good or bad. Now, Trump doesn't make a distinction, right? Assad is bad, but he gets to run his country. And, you know, uh, uh, the, the leader of Turkey is bad, and he gets to run his country. But the leader of Egypt is, you know, whatever it is, what, it doesn't matter because he doesn't believe that the United States has a, a right or a role to play in interfering. So I think that's, that's a right. big paradigm shift that you Yeah, and that came out on the call, of course, between Putin and Trump. What we heard about is that they supposedly agreed to non-interference in their own domestic affairs, right? right? it's very Chinese of them. Indeed. Um, Andreas, do you want to comment on this? Yeah, I, I find it difficult to sort of uh, think of all the, uh, the parallel uh, things that are going on uh, at the same time in domestic affairs in, 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 in major Western countries and in the international relations between the Western countries and the West and, and, and the non-West. But um, the, the two areas were, which I've observed a little bit and where I see um, maybe chances to, to keep some sort of continuity with, uh, um, with uh, the current world we're still uh, living is, uh, is uh, German domestic affairs and uh, and also the, um, as I would see it, at the end of the day, the uh, Russian-American um, relations. So for German domestic affairs, I would say that, um, um, you know, in, in lots of countries, uh, things could could change uh, uh, next year. I'm, um, I don't think that there will be a major change in Germany. I hope, uh, you know, maybe I'll be I'll be, I'll be wrong. Um, it's simply um, so far. It's inconceivable that there will be a, um, a principally new coalition. Uh, the most likely outcome will be a continuation of the current coalition, um, probably with Chancellor uh, with, with Merkel again as Chancellor. Um, there could be new, let's say, terrorist attacks in um, in Germany that would delegitimize uh, Merkel, and, and if then Merkel does not um, uh, become a candidate. For um, for the chancellorship, then I would still think um, uh, of the CDU um, again being the leading party and 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 providing um, providing the chancellor. There's also a slight chance that there might be a, 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 a Christian Democratic liberal, liberal Democratic Green coalition. It's called the Jamaica coalition in 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 Germany because the flag of Jamaica has has green, black, and and yellow the the, the, the colors of these three parties. Um, uh, in it, um, so so I would say that I, I wouldn't expect there a major change. I think uh, I think this is going to be basically going to stay. Concerning the, the Russian-American relationship, I'm, um, I would think that you know the the the, the most the ultimate uh, the, the ultimately most important thing is is Ukraine, and the uh, and the issue that uh, in 1994 Ukrainian territorial integrity became a sort of an appendix. To the non-proliferation treaty, and you know, uh, Mitchell said that for for uh, for the uh, ad uh, new administration, ISIS and Islamic terrorism is going to be the major issue. You, know, you could argue that non-proliferation is even more important because it's it's a more a more existential threat, and and because I think Putin at least will not give Ukraine Crimea back, 
and therefore um, this um, this issue is, is sort of undermining the non-proliferation regime. You could you could make an easy argument about that it's in the, uh, core you, American national interest to uh, you know to remain critical of that and not to let this sort of um, and, and to, to keep sanctions and so on because otherwise then the the whole non-proliferation regime becomes. Uh, ambivalent and then and and then you know in 10 years you know some country in Africa or in Asia may think well you know you see what happened to Ukraine uh, you know all these paper that doesn't really matter what we need is is the bomb so to say and that is actually something that even for the US could be um, existential security issue so I would think if you argue it rightly then you know there, there can be there can be no no appeasement of of, of, of Russian of Russian annexation and expansion because you know, if anything, this is the most important international treaty, at least for the U.S., maybe for, for humanity, and it's so it should be, uh, its integrity should be kept uh, on. Well, I, I theoretically agree with you, of course, but uh, I, I practically I'm not sure that will be the case, to be honest with you. Unfortunately, I think it's very unfortunate. Um, there's a lot of discussion, it's a bit off topic of our, of our current panel, but there's a lot of discussion now about this idea that Trump, who sees himself as a deal maker, be willing to strike some sort of grand bargain uh, with Putin, and Ukraine will likely be the victim of that grand bargain. And what we see now happening in Syria, of course, as of yesterday, right after that phone call, I don't know if there's a relationship there, a connection, uh, we have uh, Russia resuming airstrikes uh, against Aleppo and civilian targets. Um, and, and I hope that uh, President Trump uh, will listen to those intelligence briefings and we'll see Russia for what it is, which is Russia is not first and foremost fighting ISIS and terrorism in Syria. Um, but I think in the current context, and we have this turn uh, and the towards the pro-Russian agenda across Western, Eastern, uh, Central Eastern Europe happening now, and could happen in a much more profound way in 2017, as all of you have discussed, um, that could lend a lot more uh, legitimacy to weakening sanctions, for example, in exchange for something uh, in, in this grand bargain. Uh, so we'll see, I mean, sanctions is another issue that is outside of this discussion, but that's going to be obviously a very interesting thing to follow. Um, Marlene, I want to give you a chance to comment, and then Peter and, and Neil. Yeah, just very briefly, I think you have a deeper um, shift going on in Western public opinion, both in the US and probably even more in Europe, which is really questioning the Western democracy democratic liberal model as being able to continue to offer social justice, jobs, and welfare state in a globalized world. And I think it's, it's a legitimate question in coming from a large part of the Western societies with really doubts. And the problem is that as we don't have any more kind of big leftist ideology to offer a kind of projected idealistic solution, then, then if there is nothing to come and all the doubts are there about the ability of offering kind of social long-term development, then the solution will be coming from illiberal movements. So I think it's a deeper, it's really a deeper shift coming from all the Western societies. You're absolutely right. I, I completely agree with the rise of populism, uh, primarily on the right, but also on the left. It has as much to do with the failure of the center left to provide a convincing narrative to people who are feeling uh, grievances and anxieties about their economic situation. We have seen this in our own elections, where the democratic narrative obviously did not really confront and address the very real anxieties that the American working class uh, was feeling about their, their future uh, prospects. Um, so Peter and, and then Neil, and then we'll open up yeah, to the audience. Just three 
short points following up uh, mainly on what, what Andres and you, Alina said. Yes, I think there is a rhetoric that is about let's make friendship out of the hostility. But uh, if we think back uh, that what the previous presidents tried to do, George W. Bush uh, promised a reset of, of Russian relations. Was he succeeding in that? No. Uh, also, Barack Obama promised a reset of the relations. Uh, was he successful? No. Uh, right now, Donald Trump uh, promises a reset of relations. Will be he successful? I think no. And not because of the United States, but because of the fact that I think uh, Putin is just not interested in, in uh, having a friend in Washington. I think he is interested in having an enemy in Washington. If we look back on the previous years when Putin's uh, uh, popularity was on the rise, there were two major moments. One was obviously the Crimean annexation, the other one was the Syrian intervention. So I think it highlights us that, that, uh, that these uh, provocations and, and constant conflicts are part of the strategy. And I think more and more uh, Putin will test the voters and provoke uh, Donald Trump, the, the uh, uh, Russian diplomats were really, really reserved in reacting to the to the Russian elections. Yes, there was the big applause in the in the Kremlin. We we all seen that. But I think the uh, most of the Russian diplomats said that let's wait and see. And I think Putin was even reserved. I don't think they really want to make a, a big uh, uh, friendship. And uh, just following up on, on Andrea's point, I, I do think that, that yes, uh, increasing conflicts in Europe is, are really would be against uh, the vested interest of the United States. And I don't want to be very, very apocalyptic, but let's think back to the 20th century. Both of the world wars were started in Europe. So if you um, uh, support via Breitbart and other networks a populist movement in, in Central Eastern Europe, hope, hoping that you will have more allies, finally you will have more chaos in Europe, uh, there will be more conflicts in Europe, and who knows what comes. And finally, it's maybe the United States again that has to interfere uh, and, and uh, who wants it. So uh, I, I don't really think it's, it's the vested interest of the US. And the last point about the f uh, human rights. Uh, I think that totally abandoning the human rights uh, uh, rhetorics and paradigm would backfire as well because the human rights paradigm, I think, has been a rather successful soft power tools in the tool in the hands of of the U.S. administrations and a lot of human rights organizations all over the world. Why they are sometimes criticizing the United States for some uh, issues, uh, sometimes with with uh, it's totally justified. Uh, uh, sometimes it's it's not, uh, but. Uh, but totally abandoning these organizations who are the biggest representatives of the uh, US values in a general sense, a very general sense in, in Europe, I think it, it, it would be a mistake as well. But I'm not in the position to advise the uh, US government, so, but a lot in the audience, I think, are. Yeah, but the point you make about uh, conflict anti-Americanism serving a very key uh, role in Russian policy is absolutely right, because if you look at Russian media, they've been warmongering for a very long time, and that's a way to consolidate national identity and nationalism more broadly, which I think Putin deeply, deeply needs to sustain his approval ratings, which as far as we can tell are legitimate ratings. Um, 
if you can call it that, in a place uh, that has completely state-controlled media. Um, Neil, I want to give you the last word before we take it to the audience. There are two <clears throat> brief points. Um, I think on uh, Putin's eternal uh, conflict and crisis with the West, it is the, the fuel for the engine. But in the short term, um, a deal uh, with Trump could also be fuel for the engine in that Putin can say, we're sitting at the top table, we're receiving respect in the gangster sense, and uh, that they can bank some winnings, including the recognition of Crimea and the uh, cessation of sanctions. But that will only last so long, and then probably in the medium term, he'd revert to the crisis model and start to crank up the uh, confrontation again. <clears throat> the second point I wanted to make briefly is that I, Marlene, you said that um, uh, movements in Western countries and, and political parties and players who align themselves with Russia in some way uh, are not um, necessarily uh, in the Russian camp. They have their own identities and interests and outlooks. And it suits them ideologically or opportunistically to align with Russia. Uh, and I think that's undoubtedly true. They're not Thunderbirds puppets controlled from the Kremlin. But, uh, but these, are some, these are intelligence operations uh, that we're talking about. And the Russians will not give money or render assistance to foreign politicians without gaining uh, objective proof that this has happened and keeping it on file. And once you've accepted that money or assistance, you're never free again. Uh, and it can be brought up later to expose you to general dishonor or possibly prosecution. And it means that these politicians who've done anything remotely covert with the Russians uh, are in the position of for example, uh, people in Central Europe who were collaborating with state security in the communist era and then go into politics or journalism after 1989. And the Russians come and knock on their door again and say, look, you're compromised. Uh, we need this from you. And they're not really in a position to say no. So uh, in other words, they may not realize it, but they've made a, a fast impact. Thanks, Neil. So I'm sure we could talk about these issues quite a lot, but uh, I do want to open up to the audience. So if you have a question, please uh, raise your hand. And when you ask it, make sure it's a question and identify yourself. So I'll take a few uh, all together. So Ariel and the gentleman in the back. Is there another? Not yet? Okay. So Ariel, please. Good morning, Ariel Cohen, Atlantic Council. We are describing a relatively new battlefield. What should be the strategies in terms of response? Are these counterintelligence strategies? Are these banking regulation strategies? Are these political strategies? Are they media strategies? Who do you think should direct it? Should it be nation state focused or transnational? And what is achieved so far and what should be done? Thank you. Another question. Uh, I saw a hand in the back, and I'll take a third here, and we'll let you guys respond. Mitchell Pullman, I'm a freelance writer. I was, I was wondering if one of you could comment on, um, is it, isn't this ultimately about making the world easier for money laundering? 
Uh, I mean, this is really about the ability of the Kremlin, the Putin and his cronies to smuggle their wealth abroad and be able to hide it. Uh, Trump properties, you know, in New York and Miami have been popular places to hide wealth. Uh, it would seem to me that this aspect probably is of greater importance to the Kremlin than any sort of ideological or geopolitical struggle. Thank you. And I saw a hand here as well, so please just wait for the mic. Uh, Andre, good friend, Department of State. Uh, views I'm expressing on my own, and it's nice to see my friend Peter Krakow. Uh, <clears throat> your fascinating paper and, uh, and discussion. A uh, couple of, uh, just a, a question. First, looking at, the, at, at Russia and how it changed from the Soviet Union uh, and the, the growth of identitarian populist politics there as a way to regain its strength or what it saw as its place. Uh, you'd noted that it's maybe not Trojan horses. Perhaps, though, it was, they were drawing on the pre-existing movements in Western Europe, the, uh, the nationalist movements that existed there, and saw this as a way to be part of this club, uh, at which served then to, you know, as it grew stronger and started funding it, to destabilize the West. Uh, but recognizing, too, that this is populist, which means that it, uh, uh, as Mr. Barnett was saying, this move towards movements, this move towards, uh, the, uh, towards reaching out to people and shifting opinions there rather than working with parties, rather than working with states, becomes an important aspect of it, building up grassroots support. Looking at the recommendations in the paper, most of them are on shining light on what's taking place or, uh, fun, uh, or funding different organizations, taking things at a state level, but very little about building grassroots, very little about trying to have an understanding of what the importance of the Western values are, as opposed to shining light on what's taking place, because as I think was also said, light has been shown and the public has not shown that it cares. So how do you build that grassroots understanding? Thank you very much. So we have a question on what should the policy response been and what has it been? And then we have a question on money laundering, which I think, Neil, given uh, the UK, I think it would be interesting to hear from you on that. And then the last question on the, the grassroots response. Um, so Josh, you want to take one of those in the policy? Yeah, I'll take and then I'm, Mitchell and yeah. full disclosure, I'm not actually a policy guy, but I do play one on TV. Uh, I, I, I have extensive thoughts about what we should do to respond to what, what, what all of these active measures, right? But you know, it, in the end, first we have to make a national decision that we want to, okay? And before that happens, nothing else will happen, okay? So that's why we have to wait for this administration to shift out. But it seems to me that if we do decide that we do want to push back against this, there are some very simple, broad things that need to be done first of all, right? Fix the intel, okay? You've got to reorient this $80 billion intelligence apparatus to, to, to better analyze, be on top of this. That means repairing human networks. That means getting more uh, assets into cyber, right? And that means like shifting from something else to this, okay? That's number one. Uh, number two, we have to fix our uh, uh, public broadcasting, public diplomacy. There's no way to combat what's a very sophisticated uh, state-run propaganda effort 
from Russia with the current Broadcasting Board of Governors. It's really a mess due to mostly neglect and mismanagement. And that's a billion dollars a year right there that we could put towards this effort. So that's got to be you know, top down, re, you know, just reorganized and, and rededicated to a mission that makes sense, OK? Uh, the next thing we have to do is fix the relationships with industry, right? The reason that all this stuff works is because the relationship between our government, our intelligence agencies, and the companies that are operating in this space, the tech companies, the social media companies, is terrible, okay? Due to encryption and all that stuff, all right? And the Snowden disclosures. Okay, it's fine. We got to fix that, okay? And the way that we do that is by, you know, coming to some agreement with all of these companies on A, how to filter misinformation, disinformation propaganda out of our you know, free information space, how to distinguish between one and the other. We have to work together on that. That relates to terrorism too, but it also relates to this. You know, and then you know, we have to set basic principles for how we're going to respond, right? There, there are going to be covert operations and sort of espionage, traditional espionage that should be responded to in a covert and, uh, way. And there are going to be these active operations that should be responded to in a more overt way so that people know that we're responding. And those, these should all face, uh, should be framed around the basic uh, you know, tenets that we use for ending it to other type of warfare, which is to clearly identify combatants, use proportional responses, all of that stuff, right? So if to take the what we understand as the right way to conduct warfare and apply it to these new uh, battlefields. And again, all this hinges on political will. Um, so I could ask you all of you just keep your responses brief so we can get to Sorry. more questions. So I know Mitchell, you had a response, and Andreas, and, and Neil, uh, Merlin. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then we'll take another round. Yeah, Go ahead. I, I wanted to talk about political will for yeah. a second. So Ariel, when you ask your question, to me, that's really a jarring question for me because it, it completely contradicts my understanding of what's going to happen in this administration. When you ask we, I'm, I'm wondering who's we. I mean, what we are going to do, in my opinion, is we are going to cozy up to the Kremlin. We're going to uh, take deals. Um, we're going to get paid off. We're going to promote Russian propaganda right, um, through Breitbart or wherever. We're going to use whatever RT concocts you know, and spin that out. So, you know, I think, I think that it's, um, we're, we're actually, you know, I mean, I could be wrong about that, you know, that that's not really going to be happening. But if you look at it, I mean, the very first foreign European meeting that Trump had apparently was with one of these Trojan horses who's in this report. I didn't realize that, that you know, this guy was along with, with Farage. Um, you know, the Trump, Trump himself appears not to care about that. In fact, has quite a different attitude towards this. So I think that what I say, how I would respond to what we should do, two things. One is we have to try to find a way to convince the Trump administration not to give away too much to the Russians in this honeymoon period they're going to have. Right. That's that's a key first step. Right. Because the, the way the Russians, it seems to me, negotiate is, you know, and you already saw this in Kremlin's approach and in, in Putin's approach is, well, here's a laundry list of like amazing things you could do that would make us happy. And all of these are sort of long-term things like accepting Crimea, you know, annexation, other things. And what we'll do for you instead is sort of not be so angry, which is something they can turn on and off, you know, like any second, right? So, so I think that, that we're vulnerable to uh, giving away too much, um, either as payback or for Kremlin support for um, the, the campaign, or just as sort of general good feeling that US presidents seem to have when they come into to office about Russia. The second thing I think we need to do is get prepared for when the administration gets turned off by Russia or begins to feel that it's safe 
um, to, uh, to try to deal with Russia in a more serious way, to have a series of policy proposals on the table um, that they could deploy at that future point in time while girding ourselves for the fact that this is not realistic for the near term. Yeah, and the new administration will likely get burned uh, by Russia at some point, uh, even if there is a cozying up. But to me, it's also not clear because we, none of us really know and in many ways what the policies will be. We just have little snippets of uh, quips and things like that. Uh, you know, what do we want from this grand bargain, right? Like we know we have leverage, the sanctions perhaps. We know Russia has leverage in Syria um, in Ukraine, but what, what does the U.S. get out of this grand bargain? I think it's the bigger question that's going to be answered. A great question. Um, and so Andreas, I know you want to comment, and then Neil, just if you could keep it pretty brief because I want to take another round of questions. Yeah, as I indicated before, maybe one should sort of um, reformulate these, uh, some of these sort of world political issues in terms of national security, because there's often, I see that in, in, in Germany or in, in, other, um, in other countries, that there is this sort of, of different ideals, and you know, we should support Ukraine because it's about the European, the European values and democracy and, and support this, uh, this revolution. But um, as I indicated with the Non-Proliferation Treaty, it actually concerns you know, everybody's national interests. Or um, you could, you know, I have a somewhat similar uh, cynical view of Putin, uh, like Peter, Peter Krakow, who said that you know, Putin wants, needs the US as a, as a, as a conflict, uh, as a conflict partner, as a sparing partner. I would, with the same, um, you know, he, needs, he needs Ukraine either under his control or Ukraine being in a crisis mode or even collapsing. So if he cannot get it under, under his control, then he would like to, um, uh, to trigger a collapse uh, of, the, of, of Ukraine because that would be, uh, probably would create some, some uh, problems also for Russia, but it would be for the regime extremely good to say, you know, that ha that's happen happens to you if you democratize and have color revolution. Uh, and so on. And then this becomes a national security interest for the European countries. So you have 45 million people there. If the, if the state collapses, maybe, maybe 10 million will flee. Where, where will they go? You know? and, uh, and then you can ask, so what, you, know, you could ask Germans or, or Romanians, how many hundred thousand Ukrainians are you, uh, refugees are you going to host? What are we going to do with the four nuclear power plants in, in, in Ukraine? Among them, the, the largest one in, in Saporizhia, which is um, quite close, actually, to the, to the current um, uh, combat uh, zo zone. Um, so, and then you can argue for things like ins um, investment insurance, which um, George Soros pr um, proposed for Ukraine, lethal defense weapons, maybe some sort of East European security structure, maybe a, in the future, if the, uh, when the Russians agree, a UN um, peace mission for the, for the Donbass. You know, then, then you can uh, talk about the instruments. But first, we have to start, I think, with, with national security interests of the, of the nations in, in question and, and link them to, to, uh, to Russia. And then I think uh, we can change this uh, discourse. And Neil, do you want to pick up the money laundering question? Yeah. <clears throat> I think it's a very, <clears throat> sorry. It's a very good question. Um, and, you know, the general menace of uh, offshore, uh, opaque offshore structures and, and money laundering is, is one thing, but in terms of this uh, this report, so I mean, I think you know, as I said earlier, the fact that uh, Aaron Banks put in ten million dollars uh, in, into Brexit uh, from opaque structures in uh, in Belize, of all places, 
is, is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, it, it was 52 to 48%, and he brought in Goddard Gunster, uh, who came up with the uh, immortal slogan, take back control. I mean, it was that close that I think that uh, actually Banks' intervention may well have been uh, crucial. And really, nobody's really asking the question, where did this money come from? But at another level, uh, there's a parallel in funding with the, with the rise of movements, which is the rise of something in the UK which is equivalent to super PACs. Uh, funding organizations that do the party's work for it, but aren't covered by party funding regulations, which are quite new in the UK. And the one in, in my section of the report that I uh, highlighted was right-angle campaigns uh, where Robert Halfon, the deputy chairman of the Conservative Party with responsibility for funding, uh, had until two months after the election, uh, this company, Right Angle Campaigns Limited, uh, two of the other directors were uh, lieutenants of Dimitri Firtash. Uh, how much money went through the books of Right Angle Campaigns Limited, what it did, whether it indeed had any function, who knows, but the circumstances are extremely suggestive. Um, and so uh, better regulation of, of offshore centers and, and dirty money would cut down the opportunity uh, for this kind of activity and better uh, electoral funding regulation, which acknowledges that uh, not all uh, party, not all political funding money goes into parties uh, would be useful too. And also add to that question, you were framing the question uh, whether or not all of this is really about uh, facilitating a pro-money laundering environment. I think that's a secondary goal. I think there is the ultimate aim, uh, which from my view is to weaken European transatlantic consensus and solidarity on a, a Russian foreign policy, is to weaken NATO. Um, and is to weaken the EU more broadly. And as a secondary, you know, plus a little benefit, oh, well, you can also launder your money and buy real estate in London or New York or elsewhere and keep these loopholes open, et cetera. Um, so I see that as a secondary goal when Neil describes things on the policies will go a long way in closing some of those loops. And I think, on the, does anybody want to take the question on grassroots? Um, what do you do about building sort of bottom-up consensus for, I guess, values and principles uh, versus the, the top-down policy recommendations? Marlon? Yeah, well, I think that's a core question. I don't think fighting back really makes sense. I mean, you want to protect sovereignty and have your intelligence operation being functional. But for me, the real issue is to reduce our own vulnerabilities by solving our own kind of issues. So. For me, I mean, if you want to reduce Russian influence in France, then reduce the National Front influence. If you want to reduce it, then work on domestic issues to solve that. You don't need to really focus on, on Russia's influence itself. You need to focus on the real issue that make us vulnerable. So for me, it's much more kind of a domestic solution. It's our own weaknesses that are used by external actors, and Russia is not the only one. I mean, we could also discuss Saudi Arabia, Qatar, money uh, involvement, and so on. So there are many Trojan horses trying to enter, but it's because we have our own vulnerability. So the solution is on us, not on fighting back against the others. Yeah, and Josh was also making that point. I mean, this report really focused on political relationships, but of course, that's just one part of a broader 
issue that we're seeing where authoritarian regimes or other types of regimes are using what we see as virtues of open societies, like plurality, free media, things like that, uh, to implant themselves into the politics and polities uh, of those societies. And the way to respond to that is essentially what I think you and Josh were saying, is you strengthen independent media, you strengthen investigative journalism. But again, that all comes down to the willingness of governments and foundations and other actors with resources to support these kinds of efforts. Um, I want to take a few more questions that there are any the gentleman in the back there. So it has to be the last round, so one, two, three. So please just wait for the mic and introduce yourself very briefly. Thank you very much. Good morning, my name is Joel Hetashi. I'm the Deputy Chief of Mission at the Hungarian Embassy. Um, I would have some comments uh, about um, Professor Krakow's uh, uh, vision on Hungary, but I will keep that for myself since this event is not about Hungary. Uh, but I was bothered by one of your uh, comments. It's kind of an ap apocalyptic vision on hostile forces uh, marching uh, into the fortress with gates open. And especially uh, that you have said that there might be a messianistic vision or goal for uh, Prime Minister Orban mm -hmm. uh, to take down the establishment powers, the traditional parties. Now, uh, as we all know, uh, Fidesz, uh, the party of uh, <coughs> uh, uh, Prime Minister Orban, is the establishment party in Hungary. I mean, it has a history for 27 years. This is as long as our democracy. I, I don't really see how it would be in the interest of uh, Prime Minister Orban to take down uh, traditional uh, parties and establishment parties, especially taking into consideration the fact that um, the, the far right is losing ground in Hungary. So is there a contradiction here? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. I saw another question on this side. Yes. Uh, Nick Schwartz, U.S. Ukraine Foundation. Um, as Mr. Rogan noted, the Kremlin has an extensive and mendacious propaganda machine. Um, what role do those mechanisms play in creating this pro-Russian sentiment, not just in the political landscape, but on a grassroots level? And as a quick follow-up, what can the EU do better to combat Putin's propaganda? Thank you. And last question on this side. Yes. Hello, Yulia Ruchkova, the Institute for Human Sciences, Vienna. I have the following question. While uh, deliberating on bilateral relations, I mean, U.S.-Russia relations, uh, you say that uh, the reset of bilateral relations have never been successful. So I'm not intended to speak about the feelers that both Russia and the U.S. Uh, have made. But um, the question is the following. What are the prerequisites, conditional uh, conditions that um, could be considered um, as uh, successful for the reset of uh, bilateral relations. It could be under Trump or somebody else. So the question is, what would be the conditions for, for successful relations? What are the prerequisites or conditions uh, for an official or uh, effective or a successful reset of relations. 
Got it. Um, so I think there's a direct question to you, Peter, on uh, Orban. So do you want to respond to that? Yeah, sure. Thank you very much. I think it's a very good and, and important question. I think one of the big uh, reasons for the success of Viktor Orban is that uh, he could achieve to channel the anti-establishment sentiments that are absolutely present in Hungary uh, towards the European Union. And I, uh, when I talked about messianistic visions, I didn't t uh, talk about the domestic political ambitions of Orban. I mean, it's his third political term right now. I think uh, he pretty much knows uh, what is it, uh, how is it works governing Hungary. I think on the other hand, I, you can see it's a bit, uh, uh, let's say, speculative that, uh, that he has more ambitions. He's a political animal. He, he wants to have uh, higher position. And, that, and when he said, for example, in his Beltusnat speech that what we can observe uh, more and more is that uh, the previous black sheep uh, are becoming more and more the leader of the herd. Uh, one, first, second, he said that he feels more and more that Budapest is becoming the uh, uh, capital of, of uh, Europe instead of Brussels. I think he revealed uh, his ambitions to have some kind of European leadership. And I would say so he has a good uh, political uh, as a lot of populist leaders, he, he has a good political instinct, and I think he feels the zeitgeist. We don't know how far it will end, but, uh, but I'm pretty sure that Europe will look different a few years ago, and he will find more and more uh, allies in Europe, what we could even uh, see in the last two years. So he's not a totally isolated leader as, as all as some, one of, some of uh, commentators depict him. And Neil, you want to come back to this? Yeah, Hungary? I mean, just to <clears throat> speak briefly in Orban's favor, which doesn't really come naturally to me. Uh, I think it's fair to say that uh, the Hungarian political landscape has become so odd. Uh, it's canted so far over to the right now with no real center-center-left opposition. That what Orban is doing, uh, while his relationship with Russia is deeply questionable, um, He's continually trying to outflank uh, Jobbik uh, because they're the main opposition. And so uh, I think a lot of what he does, including the, uh, uh, the refugee um, referendum, uh, is just a domestic political management scheme to keep Jobbik uh, out of power. And I have to say, maybe better the devil you know in Hungary. Um. Thank you. Uh, Josh, do you want to take the media question? Sure. I mean, I have to tell you, I've been doing this for about 12 years now. I've never seen uh, a more sort of uh, uh, chaotic and really, I'm not using this word lightly, frightening uh, environment for journalists. And, uh, you know, this was, again, hyper, you know, uh, 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 sort of accelerated during the campaign because the Russian propaganda and the alt-right media had a, a marriage of convenience, right? And they were promoting each other's mis uh, uh, disinformation and conspiracy theories to an amazing extent and uh, corrupting the public understanding of basic issues and and uh, really beyond any recognition. And if my Twitter feed is any indication, it's working. And uh, there are now millions of Americans uh, who are just you know, convinced that uh, the reality of the situation is not what it is. And 
add to that now that we have the president-elect of the United States as recently as today, you know, tweeting, uh, you know, missives to further undermine public confidence in major media institutions, okay? Unprecedented, okay? And, you know, I don't think that necessarily any one of these actors has thought through the implications of this, or if they have, it's even more sinister, you know, and, uh, you know, the, the, what I, you could call the mainstream media, what I call the professional media, you know, people who are independent uh, and, uh, you know, and working to, you know, do journalism in the public service, speak truth to power, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, uh, they're uh, under attack, okay? And, you know, you know, in the end, the consumers have a vote here. So go out and buy a subscription to the Washington Post, please. <laughs> um, and I would also add, I would actually add to that in the media very, very briefly, um, that this is actually one space where I think we are moving so slowly from the policy perspective, are moving towards countering, responding, getting ahead of Russian propaganda. I think those efforts are still relatively nascent compared to how much the Russian government has invested. Uh, but there are these emerging uh, strategic communications task force units within the EU, uh, within various national governments. Um, we've been working on this with the Atlantic Council quite extensively. Uh, for example, the Czech uh, government, despite everything that may be going on there is establishing a strategic communications unit within the Ministry of the Interior that's relatively large and well-funded. Again, these efforts are still relatively new, but we are moving forward on this, and many other organizations have been following the information warfare, if you want to call it that. Um, but again, I think jo Josh is right. Um, you know, we have seen this emergence of uh, fake media, uh, propaganda, disinformation, not just coming from Russia, but from other sources as well, um, that are, I think, sowing a lot of mistrust in our mainstream media as well, right? Right, and, and let me just underline my point is that what's new and, and devastating is that this strategy is now being perpetrated from the biggest bully pulpit right. there is, which is the White House uh, briefing room, okay? And the president-elect's Twitter feed, okay? So that's a game changer, okay? Yep. It, it's, it's, it, it, he's intentionally undermining American confidence in the American media, right? And there's there are very few things a strategic task forces can be able to do about Absolutely. that. Um, and I want to give uh, everybody else a quick uh, opportunity to respond either to the media question, to Hungary, or to this question of what should be the uh, preconditions for successful relations. And I think, Andreas, you had a point, and then we'll, I'll give you, Mitchell and Marlene, and uh, everybody else another chance to respond. Yeah, my, my answer is going to be uh, um, uh, about this issue that the gentleman from the U.S.-Ukraine Foundation asked, how we should, should we uh, respond? Um, what I've observed in Germany uh, is that although uh, Russia has put a lot of uh, efforts to, to uh, improve its image in, in, in Germany, actually over the last years the public image of, of Russia and especially of Putin has gone down and it's now uh, mainly concentrated on the far left. And, and far right. What Russia is trying to do is not anymore, I think, uh, to such a degree to propagate its, itself and, and to uh, put itself in a, in a positive light, but to, to question, you know, people like Peter Pomerantsev have, have, have um, uh, described that, to question the, the, Western, uh, the Western order. And, and um, as I indicated before, what we, I think what we have to do in, in response is not only to, to, um, uh, to improve our, our domestic and international Western 
order, but also to, to, to go back to the, to the reasons why the EU and the NATO have been established. And, you know, that, the, for instance, you know, the EU is now associated very much with economic issues and, and, um, and, and you know, refugee rights and so on. But the initial uh, impulse for it was to, um, uh, to secure peace in, in, in Europe with these economic interactions. We've seen how the EU is now been, been able to, to preserve peace in Yugoslavia. I would argue that if the EU had given a EU membership perspective to Ukraine in the association agreement, Yanukovych would have been forced to sign the, um, the uh, association agreement in Vilnius. I think um, you know, it would have been domestically for him very difficult not to sign an association agreement with a membership perspective. And we didn't do that. And that's why then the, the, the whole country got into disorder and opened this, this window of opportunity. The same, I think we should argue, that, you know, it's, it's, um, we can endlessly argue about you know, liberal values and, and, and all these and American domination and so on. And, uh, and Russia is trying to, to you know, pr promote this picture of, of the West as, as promoting gay rights and, and, and sort of anti-traditional values and so on. But this is not actually the initial impulse of either of the EU or of NATO. You know, it's, it was, these, these organizations were created, as I already said, out of national interest. And we should sort of reconnect you know, the, the value of these, uh, of these organizations for, for the individual countries. And then we could say, well, yes, I mean, you may not like it, but, you know, for us, the EU has produced peace. For us, NATO has produced uh, security. And that's why we need it, and not for, for gay rights or something like that. So, um, so I think that should be the re response just to, um, to, to this sort of um, uh, uh, attempt of Russia to, to portray the West and its international uh, relations as, uh, as decadent. So, and final, very quick, we're already running up over time. So I want to give everybody just a quick chance to say a few words either to this last question on bilateral relations or, or something else that you want to comment on. Um, so Neil, Mitchell, Merlin, and everybody else. Um, well, in terms of, <clears throat> in terms of the response and, and countering uh, the, these uh, various phenomena which are happening at the same time, I just want to say something about uh, intelligence, which is that I think our uh, intelligence organizations in the West are um, misconfigured in a sense. Uh, in the Cold War, they looked uh, through a telescope at some very narrow things like Soviet war planning and um, intentions and so on. And uh, there's this obsession with uh, developing uh, human sources, um, which uh, which is all well and good. In the post-Cold War era, uh, this is in a way narrowed further into uh, counter-terrorism, uh, Islamic extremism. Um, and there's two problems with that. They're having a lot of trouble uh, in um, retargeting uh, onto uh, Russia and associated threats. And second, even if you retarget, if you're still looking down a telescope and trying to recruit small numbers of human sources, you're missing the bigger picture which you'd see with uh, a wide-angle lens. And uh, the, I mean, the British Army now has a concept of uh, human terrain mapping because what happened in Afghanistan was that they were concentrated on finding Taliban units and commanders and eliminating them. But they missed the general point that that they were losing the war with the Afghan people and that uh, they didn't have a broader awareness of the situation because they were looking through a telescope. These phenomena are so broadly based 
that you need an intelligence organization that can draw in a lot more information. Some of it secret, some of it electronic, some of it open, um, and form a holistic picture. Uh, and I don't think we have that right now. Okay, thanks. Mitchell, very briefly. Uh, yeah, I'd just like to respond to the, I think it was a woman from Austria who asked, you know, what could we do to really improve in a durable way U.S.-Russian relations? And, you know, this has been a project of not just Donald Trump, but also a project of um, Barack Obama when he came in with the reset and of George W. Bush before him, who looked into Putin's eyes and saw his soul. and. He, he thought it was great at the time, and it turned out not to be so great afterwards. You know, if you look, and I, we don't have much time, but if you look into what it was that broke down those, you know, relationships in the early of these administrations, it was that, you know, ultimately it can be summed up that Russia wants to take us down. Russia does not want the U.S. to exercise a leading role in the world. And it sees, tends to see this as a zero-sum game and is trying to undermine uh, our power, essentially. And, um, and under those conditions, it seems pretty hard for any president um, to try to uh, really improve those relations in a durable way. I mean, I think it was also said here, I agree that, you know, that, that Putin, to build his own strength, he's playing the Soviet playbook, to build his own strength and allegiances at home, he needs an enemy, and the U.S. is the convenient em enemy. And so under those conditions, very hard to see how this can be durable for, for really anybody, however hard you try. Right, and I think we could have a wish list of what Russia should do to correct its quote-unquote bad behavior. Like, it, it could pull out of the Donbass, right? Um, it could give Crimea back mm -hmm. to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. It could stop bombing civilians in Syria. But the point, as, as you said, Mitchell, and others as well, is that it's choosing not to do so. Mm -hmm. right? And there's a reason for that. And it's exactly because um, there is a, a desire to keep the enemy relationship with the U.S. Um, and Marlene, please. Yeah, just very briefly on the media question. I think that... We need to take a kind of broader view of what is happening with the media, because if we analyze the rise of the, the, the growing distrust of Western audience toward their own Western media as being just a kind of information warfare going on from unfriendly regime, then we miss the point, because I think the media landscape just totally changed so much. It's, it's just the birth of social media, the fact that everyone is, there is no more legitimate voice in the media. The fact that now everyone can tweet and create a kind of echo chamber, it just totally changed the way individuals will be looking at media. So I think we just need to find kind of other solutions than just hoping to answer to, to the media, to the propaganda uh, machine. We have studies, for example, showing that cons how conspiracy theories are developing in, in the Western audience. You, don't, you can have someone in Russia or everywhere launching it, but then the way it works after, just, it's just a kind of also weakness or a change of our own society toward what is true and what is legitimate. So I think here also, Russia is just playing one card that is already there, but not creating anything really new. And uh, Peter, and then very, very quickly, any final words, um, Josh and yeah, uh, I, I would uh, pick up uh, uh, one point, the question of, of Andre about what to do, how to build up something grassroots that is interested or understanding the things that we are talking about here in this room, let's say in this uh, uh, bubble. And, and I think one, the crucial reason why the voters seem 
not to resonate uh, to this issue of Russian influence is that they don't feel it on their own skin. And I think if, if uh, beside what, what uh, Marlen said, which is really important, that let's uh, deal with the uh, conflicts and problems that Russia wants to uh, exploit, and then they won't have anything to exploit, I think uh, the vo politicians should do more to explain the voters why some kind of influence from Russia are really malevolent for the Western world. And I would pick up on one uh, point only, the refugee crisis. Pro-anti-refugee, uh, anti-immigrant forces in all over Europe are in a big friendship with Russia that is by bombing Aleppo in itself contributing to the huge flood of re refugees coming from the uh, Middle East. So isn't there a contradiction here uh, that uh, you are in a friendly relation with some, uh, someone who is contributing to the crisis that you're against? Uh, and, and this is where I think Russia really has a strategy, given that what he, we have all described, that they are interested in having some kind of chaos in, in, in Europe. And I don't think that the voters really recognize this kind of links. Okay. Thanks. Josh, Andreas? Yeah, I would just close by saying I do think there is still something called the legitimate media. I do think it's important and a vital part of our democracy. And I consider the pursuit of legitimate media to be in the public service. I don't think that the corruption of the understanding of what is legitimate media, which is pervasive, is solely the, the fault of Russian propagandists, although they play a role. I think there are also domestic forces at play. I don't think social media is the, is the, is the uh, adversary. Social media is just a tool. It's human beings that use social media and consume social media uh, that determine whether or not it contributes or detracts from the discussion. I think there's chaos in the journalism world because of all of these factors. Um, but that, there's also a settling coming. And all of us uh, who take this seriously are working to figure that out now. A lot of it will be to take the financial incentive out of fake news and propaganda. A lot of it is just for money. Okay, And once you remove the ads and the ability to profit off of fake news, and conspiracy theories. That's one part of the problem. The intelligence and propaganda is another part of the problem. Uh, the most tricky part is when you know you have the president-elect of the United States spreading conspiracy theories. I'm not really sure how to deal with that. We're thinking about that now. Uh, and in the end, you know, I trust, perhaps naively, uh, you know, uh, consu news consumers uh, to over time vet sources amongst themselves vet publications, vet individual writers. It will take more responsibility and more education. And what the expert community can do is help legitimate journalists get legitimate information into their publications. And if you have any tips, I'm at josh.rogan at gmail.com. Thank you. Andreas, final word. Uh, I don't no final words, even better, because we're way over time. So thank you for your patience. We ran a few minutes over time. Um, and yes, please pick up a copy of the report. And thank you to my distinguished panelists and co-authors for working on this together. Thanks.